0: Got your Bibles, if you'll join me in John chapter 4 this morning. And we are wrapping up a a series that we've been walking through over the past several weeks uh, that we're calling Becoming. And the heart behind this series is that um, we want to become everything that God created us to be. And so the question is, what does that look like? Because God has a purpose for you. And I think we really can't hear that enough. Because there are times where we can forget that we can lose sight of that. But the gospel truth is that God has a plan for your life. I think of Ephesians chapter two, uh, where Paul is talking and writing to the Ephesian church. And this is the, the Holy spirit who anointed Paul to pen this letter. And he says over in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so there is this, there's this clear truth from Scripture that says that you are no accident. You have purpose, that God has created you with a plan in mind. And that plan is to bring Him glory. And so what does that look like? How do you get there? And that's really what this series has been all about. You get there by loving God, loving people, and living sin. that that this discipleship pathway is laid out in the great commandment and the great commission of scripture. When the Pharisees were trying to pin Jesus and they're like, tell us what's most important, what's most important. He says over in Matthew 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Live sent Jesus, the resurrected Jesus gathers the disciples on that Galilean mountainside. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so loving God, loving people and living sin. So today we're going to wrap up this series uh, by talking about living sin. And by the way, I just want to put a quick plug in for next Sunday at 915. Uh, Over the year, uh, we are going to create some opportunities for people to grow in their relationship with the Lord in these three areas. And so uh, we're going to be offering a Loving God Pathway class next Sunday at 915. Uh, And really what it's all about is I want to grow in my personal relationship with Jesus. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to live a gospel-centered life. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, how do you approach the Word or study the Word uh, how do you have a meaningful prayer life? We're all learners and we're going to learn together and grow together. But if that's you and you're desiring, please join us next Sunday. You can let us know uh, by going online uh, and there's info in the bulletin. But, but again, it's just we're going to offer this kind of a couple times a year. So here's an opportunity to grow in that personal relationship with the Lord. We'll have one for love people. We'll have one for live sent uh, in the future. Uh, but let's Let's kind of get in the word this morning. And, and before I do, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think back. Have you ever had a conversation with a person and you have this conversation and then after the conversation, you realize that you didn't realize who you were talking to in that conversation just a few moments ago. Uh, and, and how much so would it be that if you didn't maybe understand the authority or the power um, or the, uh, the influence that this individual had when you were talking with them initially, but you discover that after the fact. And had you known, it would have changed everything. So as a, as a sophomore in college, me and a buddy of mine decided, hey, we should go live in Puerto Rico for the summer. And so we were like, let's do it. And so we did. We, we, we worked and, and went to school. And we held back a little money, enough to buy a round trip airplane ticket to San Juan uh, and enough money for one month's rent. We figured if we could at least get down there and land, then we could figure out the rest. That's just details, right? Food, that second month of rent, Nah, that's, that's details. And so we did we had a month of rent and we had airline tickets and we flew down there and I actually got a job at a little restaurant about a quarter mile down the street from where we live. And I got a job cleaning tables and washing dishes. And, and I was, I was basically broke. Like we had enough for the rent, but not much after that. Uh, and so I'm a college age guy. And so college age guys need food, right? We're hungry people. And so, so I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I would clean tables and I would go back to wash the dishes. And if there was a portion of food that was left on somebody's plate and it didn't look like it was touched or or messed with, I would eat it. I would eat it. And and I would even put some in a to-go box and take back with me. I'm not proud of that. I'm just being honest. I was hungry. And so on one particular day, I was washing dishes and there happened to be this delicious looking glazed chicken strip that looked untouched on this on this plate. And so I'm cleaning dishes. I grab it. I take a big bite. Right when I take a big bite, this man walks in the back of the kitchen like he owns the place. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he comes up to me, introduces himself, and he says, it's nice to meet me. And, and he was like, are you hungry? And I, I just smile because I'm <laughs> I feel super awkward right now while this is happening. And I just smiled and, and, and he's like, well, it's very nice to meet you. Just wanted to say hello. And he walks out. And then my manager comes back and he's like, do you know who you just talked to? And I was like, no. He's like, he's the owner of the restaurant. Like the reason he walked in, like he owns the place is because he does. Like he owns this restaurant. And by the way, he's the only one that eats glazed chicken strips. It's not even a menu item. When he comes, they make it especially for him. So that glazed chicken strip that you're finishing off right now, that's his plate and was his chicken strip. And so had I known, (laughs) very different situation, right? Had I known the authority, had I known the power, had I known the influence of the person that I was having this conversation with, it would have changed everything. And in John chapter 4, the text that we are opening, we are going to see a woman from Samaria who is at a well, and for all she knows, she is talking to a everyday Jewish man. And then we're going to see it in the text, but there's going to come this point in the conversation where the blinders fall off. And she realizes the power and the authority and the influence of the one that she's talking to. And it changes absolutely everything. It changes everything. In this text, we are reminded that God has a mission. Luke 19, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. This is why he came. That he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why Christ has come. And so we're going to see that it was for God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Because of the love of God, Christ has come. And it's his love that has changed our lives that by God's grace compel us to go. And that's what we see in this text. Our love compels us to go. So let's look in John chapter four, verse one. The Bible says this, it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. In this text, we see the mission of Jesus. I love that phrase. He had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment. He had a divine appointment. And and he was going to a place, we'll learn and we'll see, uh, Jews and Samaritans, they despise one another. Matter of fact, when, when when a Jew would make the journey from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is where Jesus is headed, they would, they would not go the shortest route. They would not go through, like they're in Jerusalem, through the region of Judea, into Samaria, into Galilee. What they would do is they would hop over east uh, across the Jordan, go up the land of Perea, and then they would, they would jump back over west, across over the top of the Sea of Galilee into Galilee. Why? Because they despise Samaritans. They despise Samaritans. They can't stand Samaritans. Matter of fact, for the past 700 years, up to the moment that we're reading, there have been, there has, it has been a rivalry. Rival religion, rival temples, rival sacrifices, the whole way. So what, what in the world happened? And I think it's important that we take a minute and just to understand why. Why do they, why do they revile each other? Well, after King Solomon died, the kingdom that was once unified became divided and it split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which would be known as Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam was a servant of King Solomon and he became king over the 10 tribes to the north that became Israel, Jeroboam. And And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he became king over the two tribes in the south in Judah. And Jeroboam He he set up altars of of false worship uh, so people could offer sacrifices and not go to Jerusalem. Why? Because of the rivalry. And so so in Dan, that's the very far north, you can go there today, you can see the altar where these sacrifices were made. And so he had this this sacrificial altar up in the north, but he also built one in Bethel, which was Samaria. And so... You see these rivals at play here. And then fast forward 700 BC, Assyria was the, the power of the day. And so Assyria swoops down from the north and they take over, they take over the northern kingdom where Jeroboam is, they, they take over and, and they take all of those people who live there, they take them as, as, as exile and they, they, they move them to another conquered land. And when they would move them to one of their conquered lands, they would take those people from those conquered lands and repopulate those places that they took. They completely demoralized them. They, they, any, any, any ounce of national pride, hope or anything, like it, it was all raked away. But the Assyrians would leave behind The farmers and the poor. And so they didn't take 100% of the people. Some were left behind. And so after Assyria took over the northern kingdom, they exiled most everybody, but they left behind the Jewish farmers and the poor. Well, in time, those Jewish farmers and the poor would intermarry with those Assyrians and created this race that was known as Samaritans. And so because of that intermarriage and the rival nature of all that had taken place, you see opposition. Fast forward 586 BC, Babylon takes over the southern kingdom. They exile them over to Babylon. 70 years later, they make their journey back and begin to rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. And when, when, when some Samaritans venture down to help out with the work, they were not welcomed. They were rejected. Nehemiah, you are not you. Nope, nope, you... You can't work here. So what happens? Back to Samaria and another temple is built. So you have the temple in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans built the temple in a place called Mount Gerizim. And so what you have is even similar looking temples Rival temples, rival sacrifices. The Samaritans, they clung to the first five books of the Bible, uh, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, but they, they did not receive any of the other scriptures outside of the five. So they rejected all of the revelation that God had given to his people, and they allowed mythology to creep in, and it just became this, uh, this, this false religion as they were living that out. And so, from the past 700 years to this moment, Jews don't go to Samaria, but Jesus said, I have to go there. Why did he have to go there? Because he is on a mission. He is here to seek and to save the lost. He had a divine appointment. And if you are going to reach people that are apart from Jesus, then you must go to places where people are apart from Jesus. And Jesus goes through Samaria. He had to do it. He had to do it. He had to go there. So in verse five, the Bible says, so he, Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. I was talking to my kids about this last night. Uh, six hour doesn't mean it was 6 AM. It actually meant it was 12 PM. It's in the hottest part of the day. Most people would go out and get their water uh, either early or later, but not in the heat of the day. The only reason that you would go in the heat of the day is, is number one, you wanted to be alone. You didn't want to see people. And you would probably go there if you have a reputation. And this is exactly what we're going to see in this lady's life. But she also was unaware that she was about to have a divine appointment. And so we see the mission of Jesus. He had to go there, but we also see the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Verse seven, the Bible says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Jesus is thirsty. Jesus is the God man. He's a hundred percent God. He's a 100% man. He had to be to be our perfect substitute. Christ, God incarnate, clothed in flesh, dwelt among us to be our perfect sacrifice. And so he is thirsty from the travels. And in verse nine, the Bible says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this, you know, it was that way from the Jews. It's that way from the Samaritans. Jews have no dealings. Even more so, Jewish men would not so much as speak to a Samaritan woman. Even more so, a Jewish rabbi would never, ever talk to a woman from Samaria. Verse 10, Jesus answered her and he said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So living water, um, when, when that word would be shared, would, the Samaritans, there would be a, a visual that would come to mind, the people of the land, uh, living water is moving water. It's, it's refreshing water. It's like water from a stream or water from a river. It's moving. It's living. It's the complete opposite of stagnant water. Water that's just puddled up or pulled up and stagnates. And there's no river or stream anywhere around. And she's like, what are you talking about? Living water. There's no rivers around here. There's no streams around here. You don't even have something to pull water out of the well with. What are you... What are you talking about? Where do you get that living water? And so he says in verse 12, and she gets bold. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So remember the Samaritans, they, they held the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they held them as God's authority, God's revelation, God's word. They knew the patriarchs. Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. This is the place where Jacob had a well and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And what she's saying is, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than Jacob? Who are you? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Think about that. Will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is talking to a thirsty woman and we are so much like her. We may not have the same particular struggles or past, but, but how many of us have sought to find satisfaction in what we know is temporary? This lady is, is tired. She's weary. She is thirsty. And her life, her journey, as we'll see in just a moment, has been going after earthly, temporary things. And she realizes that it is empty. I mean, how many of us have have pursued, like, maybe it's a title. As long as we can get that title by our name. And so we work really, really hard to get that title by our name. And when we get that title by our name, we kind of stop and we look around and we're like, but I thought there was more. We thought maybe perhaps it would be satisfaction or, or maybe it's a specific dollar amount. And so so as long as, as we get that much money, as, as long as we can get there, then, then, then satisfaction, surely we will be satisfied at that point. And I've never met a person that a dollar amount has brought lasting satisfaction. It could have been for her, it's her case, relationships. Well, as long as I could if I could have a relationship with her a relationship with him, or, or, or like, as long as I have that relationship, then that is going to bring satisfaction to my life. But the thing is, is, is all of those are, are, are dead end roads. They're all temporary. They don't last forever. And so she is thirsty. And what the Lord is going to do is he's going to reveal to her what she's been thirsting for all along. And she She hasn't even realized it. And so perhaps today you're here, you're listening online and you're thirsty. You're thirsty, not in the sense of of you need a glass of water. You are thirsty in the sense of satisfaction. That that you have sought satisfaction in temporary earthly things, but it's just not there. And so Jesus is going to walk her through to reveal the only one himself who can bring lasting satisfaction. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. He's shifting the conversation. (laughs) Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus cuts to the need. I mean, here she was, she was having this interaction, like, who are you asking me for water? And now he's telling her everything about herself. Jesus knows everything about us. He's like, yes, I know you don't have a husband. You've been married five times and you're living with somebody right now that's not your husband. And and do you see that she has perhaps given up on marriage? Jesus is exposing her need, she won't take a drink of water until she realizes she's thirsty. A lost person apart from Christ in their sin doesn't realize their need for a savior until they realize their sin separates them from a holy God. And so what Jesus is doing is he is peeling back the layers like an onion and he's revealing the core issue isn't relationships. The core is You need a relationship with the Messiah, with King Jesus. And so in verse 19, the Bible says that the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He's just told her everything about her. I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see what she did there? It got uncomfortable, didn't it? So let's deflect. It gets uncomfortable. She she doesn't want to talk about her situation. She doesn't want to talk about her brokenness. She doesn't want to talk about her pursuit of finding satisfaction in relationships. She wants to change the subject to places of worship. (laughs) And she's deflecting, and perhaps I, I know I have done that. Perhaps you have too. Like when it gets uncomfortable, you try to change the subject. And so you want to jump to something else or jump to another conversation. Jesus is reading her mail and and she doesn't like it. And so she is deflecting. She's deflecting. But here's the beauty. Jesus has been most desirous of the heart more than where you're going to worship. And more than the sacrifice itself, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise all along. The Old Testament, the New Testament, God has been after one thing and that one thing is our hearts. Our hearts. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming "'when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem "'will you worship the Father.'" You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Remember, her worship has not been worship in truth. They prize the five books of the Old Testament, first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Beyond that, nope, not listen to God's revelation. They've shut their ear off. They've allowed mythology to kind of creep in, and it's kind of become this this thing that, was never intended to be. It's not truth. And Jesus is calling her on it. You're worshiping what what you don't know. It's not truth. Verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That spirit there is not talking about the Holy Spirit in us as believers. It is talking about who you are. The fact that it's it's true worship, not false worship. It's authentic worship, not fake worship. That you're all in. Your heart is all in with the Lord. But it's not just all in and there's a period. Because if you go all in absent from truth, that can get you in, in some dangerous places. And so what... What God says is, is we worship God in spirit. We're all in authentic, true, genuine heart worship with truth, spirit and truth. True worship is guided by the word of the Lord. And so verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, listen to this. He will tell us all things. I love this. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she's expecting the Messiah. And I love what she says. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. What had Jesus just told her? Everything about herself. He says, I am he. What had Jesus done? He told her everything. He knows everything and he's the Messiah and he's the only one who has the power to forgive sin and to grant eternal life and this living water, this relationship that is an eternal one to be with him forever and ever and ever. So in verse 27, the Bible says, just then his disciples came back and they marveled. They too marveled. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said What do you seek or why are you talking with her? They didn't say it, but it's written. Evidently, they were thinking it (laughs) the whole time. They're like, what is going on? What is Jesus doing? But my hunch is by this time, they probably realized that Christ is counterculture. That he will go to those hard to reach places and reach those difficult to reach people with the gospel because he has a mission Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And I love this because in that moment, what did she come up there to do? Get some water. What did she have with her? Her water jar. What does she live with? Nothing in her hand. Because for her, she was pursuing the temporary. But when she encountered the Messiah, the only one who can grant forgiveness and relationship and peace with God and this living water springing up into eternal life, you know what? All of a sudden that temporary thing didn't matter much. So much so she leaves the temporary to run after the transcendent. And what she does is what she does, she lives sent. All, all, all this thing has been flipped on its head Now, God's mission had become her mission. And so what does she do? She takes off for town and she tells them, come and see the man that has told me everything about, about me. Come and see his mission is our mission. Verse 30 says, and they went out of the town and they were coming to him. So, so the woman at the well runs into uh, maybe Sychar, the, the community there, and she is sharing about Jesus, sharing the hope of Jesus And what's happening is they're beginning to make their way out to where Jesus is. Meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I love the disciples for a million reasons. But one of the reasons I love them is because they do not have it all figured out. (laughs) And their minds are all wrapped around this physical need like Jesus needs to eat. Has he eaten yet? Let's get him some food. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is taking a physical and giving them a spiritual lesson. And what Jesus is not saying is if you're spiritual, you don't eat. He's not teaching that. But what he is saying is that there is nothing more satisfying in life than doing the will of the Father. This is, what he is, this is what he is about. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Don't know exactly, but my hunch is it's, it's time to plant. And maybe seeds have already been placed in the dirt. But evidently at this conversation, they're about four months away from harvest time. Which means if something has been planted, if it's anything, the rows are there. Maybe the seedlings are starting to sprout up a little bit. But as you look at this, it's like, obviously, it's not ready for harvest. It's not ready. And so he says, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? And I love this. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. I don't know exactly what that looked like. But it is possible that as he tells his disciples to lift up your eyes and look that the fields are white of harvest, could it be that what's happening in verse 30 is happening? They went out of town and they were coming to him. And what he's saying is the time is now. This isn't something to sit on for four months. It isn't something to wait on. He's like, no, Live sent now. The fields are ready. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Once again, physical truth, a spiritual reality. The fields are ready. The fields are ready. The fields are ready, but are the workers. And I think that's the challenge. Because as I mentioned when we began our time earlier, I mean, turn the TV on for two seconds, look at your news feed, look at the brokenness that's happened in the world. I I believe in my heart, could there be no, no more urgent time to share the hope of the gospel with a world that is broken and desperately needs the only source of lasting hope and salvation. It's Him. It's Him. He's the the only way. He's the only way. And so the fields are ready. So may we be ready. Many, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. God used their testimony. God desires to use your testimony. You have a testimony of repentance and faith. You've been rescued by God's grace. You are are enjoying the living water that will well up to eternal life. God will use your testimony. He desires to use it. And what happened is is he used this Samaritan woman's testimony to point people to Jesus. And they went to Jesus. And they realized... That he is the Messiah. He is their source of hope, that he is the only one. And I love how the Samaritans call him the Savior of the world. Because this isn't just he's the Savior of the Jews, and he isn't just he's the Savior of the Greeks, and he's not just the Savior of the people who have it all together. He is the Savior of the world. Everybody, everybody, even Samaritans. Even those who have been rejected, even those who have been reviled, even those with a reputation. And I love the fact that the Samaritans are the first to call him the savior of the world. And this one gospel conversation led to this woman running into town and led to many more coming to place their faith and trust in Christ. Crazy what can happen in one Gospel conversation. And I love what's happening here is what's Jesus in this text? Jesus is moving from Jerusalem through Judea into Samaria. What does he tell the church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this Samaritan woman had no doubt helped till the soil for when the church was birthed. And Philip takes the gospel up to Samaria and a great revival takes place. It's amazing what can happen with one gospel conversation. I, I read this, this, uh, this kind of kingdom math and, and, and I'm gonna stick close to it because in the first hour, I totally didn't add correctly. So, so hang with me, okay? So if you are the only Christian on the planet, And over the course of this year, you led one other person to faith in Christ. So the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the person comes to faith in Christ. So by the end of year one, there are now two. All right, I'm good. I'm good so far. All right. And so now over the next year, each of those two are going to share with one. And so at the end of year two, instead of two, you now have four. I'm good so far. All right. And then after the next year, same thing. Those four become eight. Next year, those eight become 16. Then those 16 become 32. Oh, come on. And then the 32 become and in the course of 35 years, the gospel would reach every single person. That our world's population supports right now, one gospel conversation at a time. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to think about the kingdom impact through a faithful witness. And so, God help us, God help us to live sent. Jesus said, "As the Father is sending me, so now I am sending you." The fields of Olive Branch in South Haven and Memphis and Cuyaville. And, and by hell, yeah, like the whole thing, like the fields are ripe. No greater time in the world than to share the good news of Jesus in the midst of such brokenness. And so I want to share, I want to wrap up here. Um, I want to share nine tips, okay? Uh, and I apologize, they're not in your notes, uh, but w- as, a, as a part of a Southern Baptist convention, that means we, we network with about 50,000 other churches And we all partner around the Great Commission and and sending just seeing kingdom growth all over all over the world. And so and so one of those entities that we support as being a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, Great Commission Baptist, is that uh, we support an entity called the North American Mission Board. The North American Mission Board is amazing it's amazing. They equip and train pastors and they plant churches all over North America. It's an incredible work. Uh, the North American Mission Board just placed this out there. They said nine tips on, they called it missional living. For, for our time today, we'll call it nine tips for living sin. All right, so if you're a note taker, here we go. All right, number one, pray, pray. You wanna live sin? I want to live sin. What does it look like? You pray that we begin by acknowledging that we are dependent on God to move if we're going to make any real impact in our community. Do you believe that? I believe that. That's why we're praying this Wednesday night. We're dependent upon Him. And so we must pray. We must pray. We have a great little resource that we've kind of kept in front of you from time to time, but just on about every table that you find around our worship center, you will see this 30-day prayer guide that says, who's your one? It's praying for that person who doesn't know Jesus in your circle of influence. And it's how to pray for them. And I encourage you, just pick one of those up and to pray. And so we pray. Second, we love. Genuinely, genuine lo- when we genuinely love and care about people that you want to reach, our effectiveness will be severely limited if we don't authentically love the people that we're trying to reach. Third is that we create margin in our schedule. That might be the, the trickiest one of all, right? I mean, who, who, who has extra time on their hands? But you know what? When we leave room in our schedule for the unexpected God moments and encounters to happen, we prepare for those. And next is we discover where people gather. As we connect with people Ask, or excuse me, whether it's a running group, a book club, a neighborhood watch meeting, or kids story time at the library. Find where people are already getting together and go there. Get involved and build relationships. Just yesterday, we took our kids swimming and the swimming pool is a good place to be around folks. And, and, and sure enough, within time, Amber's being able to minister to a lady who um, has a lot going on. And uh, we had just been to the garden earlier and I had seven watermelons and I said I'm just going to go up to these people and ask them if they want a watermelon. So, went over there and struck up a conversation and 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 what it does is it opens doors when you're around people to share the love of Jesus in a practical way. A watermelon can lead to a gospel conversation. It's amazing, but it's just it's being where people are. And then we've seen Jesus do this all morning. Ask good questions. Ask good questions. As we connect with people, ask good questions that express our genuine interest in the lives of others. Asking good questions, perhaps more so than anything, opens the door to have gospel conversations. And then here's the tricky one. Listen, 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 resist the urge to think about what you're going to say next. Simply listen. We want to listen well so we can accumulate information of how the gospel can uniquely speak into someone's hopes, fears, and their life stage. Do what you do with others. God has gifted you with unique gifts and abilities. And there are people in our community who share those same passions. So getting connected where people are doing what you love, invite them into community, throw parties, celebrate holidays, Just last week in Love People, what did Matthew do as soon as he got saved? He threw a party that night with a rough crowd. And where was Jesus? Right in the middle of it. (laughs) I love that. But throw parties, invite people, celebrate holidays, watch sports, create a culture where others feel welcome. Inviting someone into your church community is an incredibly powerful tool for mission. And lastly, nine is share the gospel People should get to know us in such a way that they are not surprised when we bring up spiritual topics that the gospel is intrinsically powerful. Unleash it from its cage and see what happens. Be bold and be amazed at the way lives are changed. God help us to live sent. To live sent. To live on mission. So as we hear this, I'm challenged. If you're a believer... Pray pray that as we've looked at the word, the Holy Spirit applies that word to our hearts and shows us by his grace and strength how we move forward in the mission, not in our power, but in his. But it could be that as you're listening in this morning on the text, it isn't so much on living scent. It is the fact that you have been seeking satisfaction down every empty dead end road. And what you're finding is every single one of them are empty. But yet, for whatever reason, you've never come to that time and place where you have rested in the satisfaction that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. And so even just like this woman at the well, it might not be relationships for you. It might be something totally different. But perhaps even through the word, God has exposed your need for forgiveness. That's what Jesus did. He revealed the need for living water. And perhaps you see that you are a sinner for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so you realize that sin is a real thing. And with this, this real thing being exposed, it is revealed to you that, wait, I can't fix this. I can't do better and make it all go away. I can't, like, my good can't outweigh my bad. Like, it's not about that. It's about finding rest in the forgiveness through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah so Jesus says, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. Perhaps you are tired of finding satisfaction in dead end roads and you know it and you're weary and you're burnt out. And I am I am in as loving a way as I can say the truth of the word is is true is that satisfaction is only found in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, I pray today is the day you begin that relationship. And we would love to walk alongside you in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this testimony. God, thank you for the testimony of your love. You had to go to Samaria. You had to go through Samaria because you had a divine appointment with someone that you loved and needed your love. That Father, through this conversation, this good news of the gospel comes forth that we are all broken and we are all sinners. But Father, you came and lived a perfect life that we could never live And you were crucified on a cross that we all deserve. And you took our punishment and you took our our shame. You, You paid the sin debt that we all owe. And they placed your body in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, you resurrected from the dead, proving, proving that you alone have the power to forgive sin. It's only through you. So Father, may we as your church, a rescued people, lift up our eyes and to see these opportunities to share the hope of the gospel in a desperate hour. And Father, I do pray if there's anybody here who needs to begin a relationship with you, that they would acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their need, change their mind about their sin, repent, and turn, change directions, have a change of mind and turn to you and to receive you as Lord of their lives based on your finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. So God, we love you. And we pray, God, that you would find us with responsive and tender hearts to your spirit's leading. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Over this song, uh, we'll have pastors here. They would love the opportunity to pray with you and for you. Perhaps there is a one that's on your heart and you just want to plead, plead on their behalf. I encourage you to pray. Perhaps you're here and you're like, you know what, I need, I need to begin a relationship with Jesus. We would love to walk alongside you in that. But let's just find ourselves obedient to however the Holy Spirit will lead us in this time.